0: this morning we are continuing through this series that we're doing through the seven miracles in the gospel of John so the the quick recap on how this is going i've repeated this a few times now but remember how this plays out that the gospel of John is roughly divided in half the first 11 chapters of John cover what is Roughly a three-year period in the life and ministry of Jesus as he performs these miracles and goes places and teaches people, all of that taking place in those first 11 chapters of John. Then, from chapter 12 forward, John really focuses his gospel on one week, that week from Palm Sunday to Easter, right? The, The triumphal entry into Jerusalem where Jesus rides in on a colt all the way through the resurrection, After he is crucified. So that one week event takes up half of the gospel. And we've noted that because what we note in the gospel of John is how so much of what John writes and shares in that first half is meant to point us towards that second half. That one week. That time when Jesus gives himself as the sacrifice for sin for all the world. So we've been looking at these events in that light. And these seven miracles that show up in the Gospel of John all happen in that first half, in those first 11 chapters, and they all, in some way, point towards that one week. And we're going to see that again today. Now, a, a little more setup to this before we get to this passage, because this is the third one. We've looked at two so far. The two that we have looked at... When Jesus turns water into wine We began with that one That comes in John chapter 2 And then last week we looked at the healing of the official's child His son And that happens at the end of John chapter 4 Both of those miracles happen While Jesus is in the village of Cana But we noted that a whole lot happens in between there Right? Right? So he begins in Cana, then he goes to Jerusalem, he goes to Samaria, all these other events happen. He returns to Cana. So those two miracles are are bookends. They are sort of frame for chapters 2 through 4 and everything that happens in it. And here's what we noted. We noted that so many of those stories that happen result in, and John tells us, the result of those miracles is that people see and they believe. It's about Jesus revealing himself in a way that draws people to faith and belief in him. We saw that in those first four chapters. Now today, we're turning the page. The miracle we're looking at today comes right after what we looked at last week in the sequence of John, because we ended chapter 4 last time, and now we're beginning chapter 5. But this is a whole new section. Everything that happened in those first four chapters of John is sort of closed with a bookend now, and now we're introducing something brand new that John is bringing in. So we'll understand that. Even though we're looking at a verse that follows immediately after where we ended last week, we are really skipping into a whole new theme in what John is revealing, okay? So, That's where we're going with it today. John chapter 5, I'm going to read the first nine verses and you'll catch right away that we are skipping over forward into a new time, into a new place, and John is dealing with a whole new subject matter with us here, okay? John chapter 5. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals.
1: Now there is in Jerusalem near the
0: Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I've no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's give a little bit of setting around this one so that you can understand what's happening in this picture, okay? So, Jesus is in Jerusalem. John says he's there for a festival, but John doesn't tell us which one. Apparently, it's not important information. We don't need to know which one. So John just says it's one of the Jewish festivals. If you're curious, Leviticus 25 lists all of the Jewish festivals, so take your pick. But Jesus is there for a festival, and he's at a place called the Pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. So this is... I'll just put up a picture of what an artist's recreation of what this pool might have been, right? It's actually two different pools that are are on a sloped area because it's outside of the temple, which was an area in Jerusalem that was very sloped. So it's by this sloped space, and it says it's got five rows of colonnades. So it's got walls all the way around, and then a wall that kind of goes right through the middle of it there, dividing it that way. And they're set up as colonnades with covered Porches, patios would be the best way to describe it. And what they would do it then, because he, n- he names that it's by the sheep gate. Well, if you, uh, if you look in Nehemiah 3, you, wonder, you see where there's mention of what the sheep gate is. It's a, a small opening on the north end of the temple. So on this artist's rendition, you see that there's the path that kind of triggers up on the uh, front side here that goes to this small opening up there. That is what, what they're rendering as the sheep gate. Now, what they think that was used for then is that these pools would be used as a way of washing the sheep before they went through that gate into the temple, the sheep that they would use for their temple sacrifices that they used there. That's kind of the understanding of what this pool was, why it was there, what the sheep gate was about. That's how that's set up. Today... Because archaeologists have found this, it, it looks something like this. So we, we know from archaeological, ar- archaeological research that, uh, that this was a real place, and it existed just the way that John describes it. Uh, they found that place in Jerusalem. So, Jesus is at this pool near the sheep gate outside the temple, and there's all of these sick and disabled people who gather there. They gather there because they're looking for healing. It, the the tradition that went along with this was is that uh, this this was a pool which was likely uh, it was spring fed because it was up high on the top of Mount Zion right outside the temple so the only way there'd be water in there is if there was a natural spring that would feed into that pool so the tradition goes that uh, that this pool is spring fed but but it it's a spring that would burst water unevenly from time to time don't think like um, Old Faithful geyser not that kind of releasing, but it would just bubble up a little bit at an uneven rate from time to time. Now the tradition went that the people of Israel held that what actually was happening then was that an angel was stirring the water. So when the water would start to move like that, they would say, an angel is stirring the water. And then they believed that the water had healing properties when that happened. So however this tradition came about, and we don't know how it came about They thought that the first person who would get into that water when this happened would be healed of whatever it is that they had, a sickness or some disability like that. That's what they thought, and that explains then why all of these sick and disabled people are gathered around this pool. Details for that are actually in verse 4 of the passage that we read. And you're looking back in your bulletin saying, wait a minute, you skipped over verse 4. If you're opening a Bible and looking at an actual Bible, you will see that it's not in the Bible either. There's no verse 4. That piece was pulled out. There's a footnote in a Bible, though. You can read what was there. They explain a little bit of that tradition, that they believed an angel stirred the waters in the first one went, went there. Why is it not in your Bible? Well, because it is very obviously something that was added later. John didn't write those words. So they just footnote it that way to know that. You know what? Someone thought this needed more explanation. John didn't give us enough information here. We're just going to throw this in. Uh, We know that because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the Gospel of John don't include those words. So that's why it's footnoted to the side. So that's what Jesus is doing there. And that's what he sees there. Let's note this thing, though, too, that this is an unusual place for Jesus to be, because just by nature of there being sick and disabled people there, in the Jewish culture of that time, these are people that would have been considered unclean, impure. For those who were highly religious Jewish people, you didn't want to be near or associated with people who were unclean or impure. You stayed away. So in some way, it's unusual that Jesus would go there because it's not expected that people would go there and associate with people there. Now then, maybe this is not all brand new for us, though, because we've seen a pattern of this already, right? In in John chapter 4, what we saw leading up to these events is that Jesus, when he's traveling around, he stops over in Samaria. You remember that story. He he travels through Samaria. He meets a woman by the well, so he's talking to a Samaritan woman which is also something that highly religious Jewish people never did. And then he ends up staying in this Samaritan town as the guest there for two extra days, something else that highly religious Jewish people would never do. So we understand something of this that's come into place, that Jesus, in his ministry, is starting to seek out, intentionally seek out, marginalized, outcast people. That Jesus is focusing his attention towards those who've been kicked out onto the curb and said, you don't belong, you're worthless, you're no good, you're not part of the kingdom of God just because of who you are or how you live or what's happened to you. Jesus is intentionally going after those people. So not surprising to us, But there are some new features taking place here in this story that I want us to highlight. New features that that show something different from the first two miracles that we've seen already that show us what Jesus is after here. So we'll see what those features are and then, then we'll bring it into the place of how those things still speak to us today. What it means for us in the church today to recognize that. The first thing that we see here is that Jesus is the one who initiates the activity at this pool, right? That Jesus is the one who seeks this out. You know, in the the first two miracles that we saw, the first two examples that we saw, Jesus was not the one to begin there. Remember, at that wedding feast in Cana, it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who comes and tugs at him and says, hey, they're out of wine, you should do something. Hey, servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary sets it all up, and remember, Jesus even kind of pushes back a little bit. Why are you you getting me involved in this? It's not time yet, right? And the second miracle that we saw, it was this ruler from the town of Capernaum who travels all the way to Cana to find Jesus and seek him out and beg him. In fact, command him, come with me, you need to heal my son. That both of these instances, people are coming to find Jesus for this. But today we see something different. This man is not looking for Jesus. Jesus goes looking for him. Or just stumbles upon him, however it may be. But but recognize that Jesus is walking through a part of town here where religious people don't normally go, don't associate. He is there on purpose, intentionally, and comes by this man who's laying there, a paralyzed man. Now, even though we've seen in the previous stories, like in Samaria, that Jesus is developing this pattern of reaching out to people who, who normally should not be associated with. What we saw in chapter 4 is, you know, only the disciples are there with him. It's not widely known yet that Jesus is doing this, but not today. Jesus is today by this sheepgate pool where all of the sick and disabled people, the unclean people would be, and he's doing it right in full view of the temple because this is just over the north side of the temple. All of the religious rulers and leaders would see this now. Now it's out. Everybody knows who Jesus is associating with and how this works. So Jesus goes and he initiates this conversation with this man who's laying by this pool. He just asks him one simple question. Do you want to get well? That strikes me a little bit. Why would Jesus need to ask? I mean, we know it's Jesus. He knows the thoughts of every single person. But, but you don't even need that. Because obviously he's paralyzed and he's by this pool that had this tradition of being able to make people well. Of course he wants to be well. Why else would he be there? But Jesus brings on the conversation, asks the question. Now, the answer that we read, you know, he, he gives the explanation, well, I'm here, but there's no one to help me get in the water because I'm paralyzed. And You know what? I almost read that with a hint of sarcasm, the answer that comes back. Almost with a, duh, why do you think I'm here? And look, my legs don't work. That's why I can't get to the water. No one's here to help me, in case you didn't notice. I I almost read it with that kind of a flair, that there's almost a little bit of sarcasm of, why are you even asking me this question? Isn't it obvious? Look at me. You see, there... There is no indication here at all that that this paralyzed man that Jesus is talking to accepts Jesus, believes in Jesus, has faith in Jesus. Remember in those first two miracles, John highlights that, right? John highlights for us the way in which people who saw or witnessed what Jesus did believed in Jesus. Not here. Not this time. This one's different. There is nothing that tells us that this man believes in Jesus, that Jesus can heal him. In fact, this man doesn't even know who he's talking to. He doesn't even know that it's Jesus who's there. We catch that later in the chapter, that he didn't even know who it was. So this time, there's something different going on. But even though this guy doesn't know Jesus, doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't have faith in Jesus... There's no indication of that, even though there's no indication of that. Jesus heals him anyway. And he simply says, get up, take your mat, go, walk. And he does, instantly. And there's nothing else there. There's no conversation. There, there's no thank you. By the way, who are you? Right? There's, there's no, you know, I want to follow you now like these other disciples. I want to believe in you. There, there's nothing of that. He just simply does what Jesus says, takes his mat and he walks away. The, these mats are probably mats in that time which were made out of straw that was all woven together so it could be rolled up, but, but don't think of it like the uh, yoga mats you see people walking around with today. They were a little bigger than that, and when it was rolled up, you would carry it on your shoulders and do that kind of a thing. But, so that's what he does. He just rolls up the mat, puts it on his shoulders, and off he goes. End of story. There it's done guy who doesn't know him, doesn't believe in him, healed by him and walks away. And it's over. Well, it's not quite over because in verse 9, there was one more thing that we read there, the very last phrase, which turns out to be one of the most important phrases of the story, right? Um, The phrase that says, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. That's something new and different here. And that sets up what comes next. So I didn't read all of chapter 5, because really, this miracle, this story, is just the setup for all of John 5. Let me paraphrase what goes on from here, so you know how that story plays out. This guy walks away with his mat. He bumps into some of the religious leaders, the rulers, the Pharisees, who see him carrying a mat, something you are not supposed to do on the Sabbath. So they accuse him of a crime. You're breaking the law by carrying the mat. He says, but but the guy who healed me told me to do it. I don't know who it was. I don't know his name. He just healed me and told me to do this. So now they're looking after, well, who did this then? They can't figure it out because Jesus slips away from that moment. Later on in the story, Jesus and this man run into each other again in the temple court. And this time the man figures out who he is. Oh, you're Jesus. But still, John tells us, doesn't believe him, doesn't follow him, doesn't thank him, doesn't do anything, right? They just have this little interaction. And now the man's reaction, it's not to believe Jesus, it's not to thank him, it's not to follow him. His reaction is, turn him in. He goes and finds those Pharisees, those rulers, those Jewish leaders, and he says, hey, I figured it out, it's that Jesus, he's the one. So now they're on to Jesus. That's how the story plays out. And then it comes to where they approach Jesus with those questions of, what do you think you're doing on the Sabbath? You see, the entire thing is framed in a way in which this this becomes sort of a courtroom scene. That may be the best way to think of this. This miracle that Jesus does here is a miracle that the Pharisees push for as being a crime. You know, it Even though we read these miracles of Jesus and we understand these as signs that point to the grace of God, to his healing, forgiveness that comes to the world, these Jewish leaders saw this and they didn't think grace of God. They didn't think it's a sign of the Messiah. They thought crime. Someone committed a crime here. That's how they see Jesus and what he does. Well, Jesus sort of latches on to this in the story as it goes through John chapter 5, and he takes on some of that language. Okay, you're going to level an accusation at me, some legal accusation that I broke the law, your law of Moses, by healing on the Sabbath. Let's let's work this one through. So Jesus continues in chapter 5, explaining a defense of what he's done and why he's done it. And he uses courtroom language, if you were to read through the rest of chapter 5. He talks about witnesses and testimony, all the things that you would expect to find in, in a courtroom kind of scene. And he brings this then as a way for, for us to understand where Jesus is bringing this story, you know, where, where this miracle, this healing is headed, that when he's committed when he's accused of committing a crime, that Jesus then enters that courtroom of Jewish society and he engages the trial there. He says, all right, you want to talk about a crime? You want to talk about being accused? Fine. Let's talk about a crime. Let's talk about being accused. But by the end of chapter 5, what you realize is that Jesus actually you know, uh, flips that courtroom scene around He uses this moment to say, you know what, actually, it is God the Father who sits as the judge, and it is the sinful world that stands as the accused. So even though you are interpreting this act of grace and healing as a crime that was committed, Jesus takes this moment then to explain, yes, there is a crime that has been committed And yes, there is guilty and accused. But it is the sinful and broken world of fallen humanity that has committed the crime and that stands accused. It is God the Father who sits as the righteous judge. Jesus brings that about and flips that story in this way. And leaves it to a point where we we have to wonder then, what's the verdict? You know, even though it comes out of the story that these Pharisees, these religious rulers, are furious with Jesus and looking for ways to arrest him and kill him, that John uses this story then to highlight, because remember, John is using all of these miracle stories in the first half of the gospel to point us forward to that one week in the second half. That John is putting this miracle story in a way for us that shows some other kind of a trial, another verdict that's coming, one that we see and we understand through our own confession that we are actually the ones who, who are the accused. We are the ones who are the guilty. We are the ones who cannot bring righteousness before God by anything we ever do on our own. That we stand accused and guilty as charged. But look what Jesus does in this story, right? The, this paralyzed man who's healed and who's who then breaks one of the Sabbath laws because he's carrying his mat. He's accused by the religious leaders. You've committed a crime. But Jesus steps into the middle of that, doesn't he? Jesus allows himself to be the one who's accused in his place. So instead of this paralyzed man who's, now been brought back to life and healing, who's now been restored and can go about the life that he's been given by God, instead of that being short-circuited by the crime that he's committed, Jesus steps in again, steps in again and says, you know what? I'll be the one who's accused here. You, know, you, you can bring that charge to me. Don't charge it on him, the one I've healed I will step in, in his place, and I will let you take all of your accusations of guilt and wrongdoing, of sin, of crime. I will let you take all of that, and instead of throwing that on him, you know what? Sure, throw it on me. I'll take it. John is using this story to show us how that plays out, isn't he? He's showing this, that in the end here, that the verdict that comes back is that, you know what, you and I, we now live with souls that are no longer paralyzed. We have been healed by Jesus. And the process by which Jesus brings us that healing is a process wherein Jesus himself steps into the middle of that trial and says, I'll be the one who's accused. I'll be the one who carries the guilt. I'll be the one to take the penalty for that. Because by doing that, you are set free. John points us forward to that, to recognize in that courtroom scene how we are all those people who lived paralyzed, stuck, unable to move or do anything on our own in our own souls, in our own hearts. But Jesus steps in and brings new life, new healing, takes our place as the accused and makes us whole again. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the way that you demonstrate for us how it is that even though we live in this world of laws that we try to follow that that you step in and you show us all the ways in which you have taken our place you have made yourself the one who's guilty in our place that you have taken that punishment for us and that we've been made whole again by that Lord even though we confess that we are broken sinful people May we always remember that the righteousness that you bring comes to us as your gift of grace. And may we live in eternal thanksgiving for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Would you please stand?